If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. Today we begin a new sermon series that will take us all the way up uh, to Palm Sunday, entitled, Who is Jesus? We're going to be looking at the seven I Am statements found in the Gospel of John. Maybe you're thinking, uh, John, I grew up in the church, I know exactly who Jesus is. Uh, But I want to challenge you, I think we all have too small a view of God. Uh, and we have too small a view of Jesus. And I think uh, one way we can think of these seven I am statements is we can think of them like uh, different camera angles at a sporting event. Perhaps you watched the Super Bowl this past Sunday, uh, and at the end of the game there was that controversial holding penalty that set the Chiefs up to win the game. Uh, but if you were watching, you know, there were camera angles of, of replays from every different angle, from up above, from the side, from in front, from behind, trying to show exactly what happened on the play. So it is with these seven I am statements of Jesus. They give us a 360 view of our Savior, of how great a Savior He is. And I want to tell a story to open before I read this text that I think drives home the importance of this series and what I hope that we'll walk away with each week. Back in the early 1800s, a group of Christians from America traveled to London And they were there for just one week. And some of their friends said, hey, we want you while you're there to hear the two best pastors of the time, and I want you to report back to us. And so on Sunday morning, they went to hear Joseph Parker, a very eloquent minister. And after the service, one of them said, I do declare it must be said, for there's no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever there was. Well, the group wanted to go back that evening and hear him again because he was so good, but they remembered their friends wanted to hear the other great pastor in London, Charles Spurgeon. And so reluctantly, they went to Metropolitan Tabernacle that evening and heard Spurgeon preach. And as they were leaving, one of them said, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever there was. My prayer is that as we walk through this series, that week after week, you and I will walk away saying, Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever there was. It's not about me and how good or how bad you think my preaching is or anyone who preaches from this pulpit. It's about Jesus. Remember, John said, John the Baptist, he must increase, talking about Jesus, and I must decrease. With that said, let me pray before I read our passage. Gracious God, you've told us that we should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this, your holy word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now, the reading of God's word, John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then skipping down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus said, is, it not, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. On January 26th of this year, Keith Stonehouse was in for a rather unusual experience. His wife was out at the movies, and so he was spending time with his six-year-old son, Mason. They had a good evening, and they got, he got him ready for bed, and bedtime went so smoothly. Keith said he thought about texting his wife, hey, things are going better than when you're here, but he thought better of it. Dads, take note of that. And then things got interesting. The doorbell rang, and someone put a large bag on his front step and then walked away. He thought, that's strange. And then it happened again, and again, and again. And when Keith stepped outside, he found five orders of jumbo shrimp, endless chili cheese fries, chicken sandwiches, and ice cream, among other food. Unsure of the madness that was, he was watching unfold before his eyes, Keith decided to check his phone to find dozens of messages from the food delivery service Grubhub. Lo and behold, while Mason spent 30 minutes downstairs, remember Mason's six years old, spent 30 minutes on his dad's phone and down in the basement before bedtime, ordered $1,400 of food from Grubhub. And on top of that, he spent $400 on a pizza order that the credit card company declined as potentially fraudulent. Keith confronts Mason, and while he's talking, Mason interrupts, Dad, stop. When is the pepperoni pizza going to be here? And when asked by his dad why he did it, Mason responded as he hid himself under his comforter, I don't know. I was hungry. You know, you find something similar going on here in John chapter 6. If you know the context The people, Jesus was teaching the people and they were hungry. And so Jesus fed a group of 5,000 men plus women and children. So between 10 and 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And the crowd went wild. In fact, in verse 15, Jesus withdrew by himself because he perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Why? Because they had been hungry. Jesus had fed them. In response to all this, Jesus gives us the first of his seven I am statements. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In this explanation of his identity, Jesus teaches the crowds and you and me as readers of the Bible that he alone satisfies. And to show us this truth, he first highlights the emptiness of the things of the world, and then he shows us the fullness of himself. So first, the things of this world, worldly treasures, will not satisfy. And this is crucial for us to understand. If we want to be filled, filled by Jesus, we must first acknowledge that we're empty. And Jesus shows the emptiness in a couple areas of life. 
First, he shows the emptiness of worldly religions. Now, maybe you're thinking, John, you just read a passage, and I didn't see anything about other religions, Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. What are you talking about? Well, it's true that none of those religions are mentioned there, Um, and certainly none of them uh, do satisfy. They all tell us to earn our way to God instead of God coming to us. But if you have your Bible, I want you to look at the passage right before what I read. And I do want to encourage you to bring your Bibles for this series because we're going to read sections in the Scripture reading and then we'll look at some of the context around it. So I'm going to start reading in John chapter 6, verse 25 to give you a little context of what's going on. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then that's where we picked up. In case you're unsure of what exactly is going on, let me summarize it for you. The crowds, after being filled, find Jesus who had gone across the other side of the Sea of Galilee and said, Jesus, when did you come here? What's going on? And Jesus says, you came here not because you were impressed by the sign, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you were hungry and I gave you food. Jesus doesn't succumb to their ideas. He's teaching them that the spiritual is more important than the physical. And he tells them to believe in the one God the Father has sent. He's saying, believe in me as the Messiah. And the people get that, but they don't like it. So they ask for a sign. He's already given them a sign. He fed all those people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then they talk about Moses and manna. If you were here two weeks ago, we looked at Numbers 11, where the people complained about the manna that they had. And basically here in John 6, The people are saying this, okay, Jesus, it's cool that you fed us once, but Moses fed the people of Israel six days a week for 40 years. So step it up, big boy, like, let's see what you got. One time was really not that great. You know, the religious leaders were encouraging the people in this idea. They were telling them to look for a Messiah like Moses to feed them. One of the Mishnah, which is the commentary on the Old Testament for Jews, it says, what did the first Redeemer do? He brought down the manna. The last Redeemer will also bring down manna. And so what we see is that the Jews were looking for the wrong type of Messiah. They had a wrong version of a Savior, and it caused them to miss Jesus. And friends, we too can fall for this. We have misconceptions about Jesus, and we end up looking for a Savior other than Jesus of Nazareth as revealed in Holy Scripture. 
We might want a therapeutic Jesus, one that we can cry out to when we're kind of depressed or sad, and he can just cheer us up and make us feel better. Or we might want a moralistic Jesus, one who just says, hey, be a good person, and if you're good enough, you'll go to heaven. Or we might want a gift-giving Jesus, one exists who just to give us what we want when we want it, and then we can put him back on the shelf so he doesn't mess up our life too much. But friends, that's not who Jesus is. He's the bread of life. As one scholar put it, he's the one who imparts and sustains life. He is the only way to be saved. One of the later I am statements in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's exclusive with Jesus. You see, the big problem with this worldly religion that the Jews had here was that they wanted Jesus on their terms. They wanted a Jesus that they could control. And Jesus was having none of it. We need Jesus on his terms, not on ours. Jesus also shows the emptiness of worldly ideas. In verse 41, it says that the Jews grumbled about him because of what he said. John is directly connecting us back to the Israelites in the wilderness, for they grumbled over and over against the same word. They grumbled because they didn't have enough food, they didn't have water, they didn't like the manna, they wanted meat. And so the people here grumbled because Jesus didn't fit their human understanding. In verse 42, Verse 42, they say, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, we know this guy. We know his mother and his father. We watched him grow up. We've known him since he was a boy. How does he say he came down from heaven? They're relying on their human understanding and their abilities to make sense of Jesus. They're trying to rationalize about him. And the irony in all of this is that they've completely missed the virgin birth. The true identity of who Jesus is. And Jesus' point is that worldly ideas and human reason aren't enough. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a skeptic. You're skeptical about Jesus and you're not sure if you really believe. And if that's you, first I want to say I'm so glad you're here. And if you have questions, I would love to talk to you. But secondly, let me say that logic and human reason isn't enough. Because of sin, your mind is flawed. You will not understand unless God gives you understanding. You cannot rationalize your way to Jesus. So pray and ask that if God is real and I believe he is from his word, then ask that he would give you understanding. Maybe you're a follower of Christ, but you are prone to worldly ideas. Maybe it's the ideas of a secular culture that there are many ways to get to God, and whatever works for you works for you. Maybe it's the idea that sex outside of marriage isn't that bad, or that gender can be fluid, or that gay marriage isn't that big of a deal. On and on we could go. Friends, don't fall for worldly ideas. And certainly don't fall for worldly ideas about Jesus. Lastly, Jesus shows the emptiness of worldly possessions. Jesus told the people in verse 26 that they came back not because they saw a sign, but because they had their fill of the loaves. They cared about Jesus not as Savior and Lord, but as 
a miracle worker to feed their bellies. They said, basically, we liked our Big Mac and fries. Jesus, give us some more to eat. As we noted earlier, they also came to Jesus seeking to make him their earthly king. They were looking for physical deliverance from the Roman Empire. They cared about worldly possessions. And Jesus is showing that those are empty. In fact, in verse 49, he says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. That manna, as good as it was, bread come down from heaven was not enough, for the people ate it, and they still died. The things of this world won't satisfy the longings of your heart. In Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord says through the prophet, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns were holes dug in the ground to capture rainwater. But if it's broken, then muddy water is going to come in and contaminate your water, and water is going to go out, you're going to lose it. Jesus is saying the same thing. It's this idea that if you look for satisfaction in the things of the world, it's like a broken cistern. It's never going to satisfy. It's not going to hold water. Kids, maybe you think it's your friends or toys or video games that will make you happy. Teenagers, perhaps you think it's, you know, your social media presence that will satisfy you or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If you aren't married, maybe you think marriage will be what satisfies you and makes you happy. Parents, perhaps you look to your kids, or grandparents, you look to your grandkids. We can look to our friends or to neighbors. We can look to our jobs or our money or our status. Even good things, none of it will actually satisfy. It's all ultimately empty. Back in 2005, 60-minute correspondent Steve Croft spoke with then New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady about his success on and off the field. And Tom Brady had something very fascinating to say. He said, there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? Croft says, well, what's the answer? To which Tom Brady responds, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. All of the success in the eyes of the world. And he says, it's got to be something more. And that's what Jesus is teaching here in John 6. The things of this world will not satisfy Brothers and sisters, you are a soul, and the bread of this world will not feed your hungry soul. But thankfully, that's only part of the story. The second and better part is the fullness of Jesus. While this world can't satisfy the longings of your heart, Jesus can. Remember the words of verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying something vital for us to grasp. He alone can give eternal life. He alone can give meaning and purpose to you. He alone can satisfy your soul. And he can satisfy because he is God. 
It's easy for us to gloss over the words, I am, in this, I am the bread of life. But Jews of that day, that would have rung a bell in their mind. You see, the Greek words there, ego, eimi, are a translation of the Hebrew from Exodus 3, where God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent me. Jesus is claiming to be God. It's part of why the religious leaders hated him so much. Jesus can satisfy because he is God. Look with me at verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is teaching us what it means to come to Jesus and to believe in him. He gives us some insights into how this works. Friends, we can only come to God if God first initiates with us. No one wants to come to God on their own. Why? Because Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. So God must draw us to himself. And we're tempted to think of this drawing kind of like we kind of get an animal, like a dog, to come to us. They hold out some food, like, all right, come here, puppy. And like maybe God will motivate us like that. That's not at all what Jesus means when he says God alone will draw. A word is used elsewhere in John 21, 6, that the disciples drew a heavy net full of fish. It's like they dragged that net. In Acts 16, 19, Paul and Silas are drawn before the civil authorities in Philippi. Literally, they're dragged before them. And then in John 18, 10, Peter drew a sword. It's the same word, and each of these carry the sense of pulling, drawing by overcoming resistance. And that's what God, through the Spirit of Christ, does to a sinner dead in their sins. Draws them, overcomes their sinful nature, and gives them a new heart. Takes out the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. If you are here and you're a follower of Christ, this is the gospel. Thank God that he has overcome the sin in your heart and drawn you to himself. Let that grow in your mind how great a Savior you have. And if you're seeking answers, ask God to draw you to himself. In verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It's tempting to take this to mean, well, if you believe, then you will get eternal life. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, has eternal life. Think about it like this. Uh, A pastor from years ago gives this illustration. He says, imagine a battlefield over which troops are advancing in order to take a ridge that is just before them. Suddenly, heavy gunfire opens up and immediately the soldiers fall to the ground until the enemy fire is silenced. Imagine further that all the soldiers are either dead or alive and unwounded. When the firing stops, the command comes once again to advance. Naturally, some of the soldiers do get up and move forward, while others, the ones who are dead, do not. Why is it that the ones who do do get up and advance get up? It is because they are alive and hear the voice of their commander. Does their getting up give them life? Of course not. It is rather the other way around. In the same way, he that believes on Christ does so because he already has life. 
Friends, God gives us life, and then we respond to that gift. God initiates. God changes us, and then we respond to him. That's part of the beauty of what Christ does, what makes him so great a Savior. And then in verse 50, he says, This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I can't help but imagine that Jesus was pointing to himself when he said that talking about how he is the source of true contentment and satisfaction in this life. And then he concludes in verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is pointing us forward to the cross when we celebrate around the time of Easter. The bread that he gives is his flesh on the cross. He's telling us that life only comes through death. His sacrificial death on the cross gives eternal life to all who believe. As one commentator put it, a Christ without the cross is of no use to us. If Christ didn't die on the cross, he wouldn't satisfy. But praise God that he did. So what do we do with this? Well, what does Jesus say? He says that we are to eat of his flesh and drink his blood. And he expands upon this in verses 52 to 59. And at first glance, we might think that he's talking about the Lord's Supper, but I don't think that's what he has in mind here because he hasn't instituted the Lord's Supper yet. He said this is a spiritual example of what we're to do. To eat of Christ means to accept and to appropriate him. And we can't miss the connection Jesus is making to the Lord's Supper, or not to the Lord's Supper, to the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. In that prayer, what do we pray? Give us this day what? Our daily bread. We're asking for God to give us physical bread, but even more than that, spiritual bread, spiritual nourishment, the bread of life, the bread come down from heaven. Psalm 90 verse 14 says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Think about bread for a minute. You know, bread is not that important to us, but in the Middle East, and especially at that time, bread was a central component of every meal. And if you're gluten intolerant, you can kind of miss what Jesus is saying. But what he is telling us is that bread is for everyone. No matter how rich or how poor you are, everybody eats bread, and without bread, you're going to die. The same is true spiritually. Without the bread of life, you will not live. To feed on Christ means to do so by the Spirit through the Word of God. We must be people who come to Jesus as He is manifested in the Word of God. Without physical bread, you have no life. Without spiritual bread, Jesus, you have no spiritual life. Physical bread, you have to eat it or it does you no good. So with Jesus, you have to come and accept him. Have you done so? Have you trusted in Jesus and found the life-giving nourishment that he offers? If not, come to him today. See your sin for what it is. Turn from it and turn to Christ. And if you have, continue to feed on Jesus. You know, sometimes you have a big meal and you think, man, I'm not going to eat for a week. But does that really work? No, in a couple of hours you're hungry again. 
so it is spiritually. Jesus satisfies once for all, but praying a prayer one time is not a lifelong meal. We come back to him over and over again, finding spiritual nourishment. You need Jesus, and you need him on his terms. So read his word daily, weekly hear his word preach. Come to him not just when it's convenient, but all the time. So I have to ask you, will you find your satisfaction in Jesus alone? You know, we're prone to look for contentment and satisfaction in so many other things, even good things. But Jesus alone will satisfy. The fact of the matter is that you are hungry. Maybe your stomach literally, physically is hungry, but even more so your spirit, your soul is hungry you ever had your stomach rumble and someone looks at you like, hey, are you hungry? You're like, no, I'm not. You can't deny that. So it is spiritually. You can't deny spiritual hunger. It's there. Years ago, a Scotsman came to America and he came on one of those big ocean liners. And he didn't have a lot of money, so he decided to stock up on crackers and cheese and fruit to save money. And those meals worked for the first four or five days, but eventually the crackers got stale, the cheese began to mold, and the fruit kind of turned bad, and eventually nothing was left that was worthy of eating. He decided that he would go to the dining room and have one last good meal before the ship docked, and he would go ashore to the city of New York. Imagine his surprise when he walked into the dining room and found that everything was free. All he had to do was come and eat of it, and he had been trying to eat these stale crackers and moldy cheese. It was all included in the price of the ticket before he had left the British Isles. Friends, we're just like that. Isaiah 55, our first reading, says that we can come and buy without money, and yet we settle for moldy cheese and stale crackers. Don't let that be you. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the greatest Savior that ever there was. Let us pray.